Hi Chris, how are you? Yeah, good evening, Rob. Here we go, a little later in the week, but I think we're ready for episode 50. We are ready for episode 50 for the 5th of January, 2023. Yeah, 5th of January, it's going quick. We're already partway into the year, so two more weeks and we'd have done our 52. Yeah, we're we're perilously close to it. We'll have to have some sort of celebration of, of something. What that will be, I don't know. Maybe for those who have come and joined our podcast a little later, we can maybe go through our early days on the Mac or something like that again, or we'll see how, how we feel when we get there. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. So should we dive into follow-up? Let's dive into follow-up. And I mean, we should say at the top of the show, there hasn't been that much going on. CES has just started in America, so there's some things beginning to drop out of that. But being Christmas and New Year, there hasn't been an awful lot. So we'll, we've had to delve a little bit to find the news stories that would be most interesting and to, to follow up on. And we've maybe done some media too, so that's us. Yeah, and I think let's do CES next week and see, see what it looks like and how many things have been announced this week that have been killed next week will be interesting because sometimes <laughs> you see a lot of CES that never see the light of day. I'd like to know what the hit ratio is of something being announced and then actually shipping of CES. It'd be quite interesting. Yeah, definitely. Good. Okay, we've got some follow-up and the first bit's with you. Yeah, email migration. Just very briefly on this, I've spent a long time changing all my accounts over to use my new email address. We, we talked how I moved to use a custom domain at Apple. That's gone really well. And actually, I've gone through all my passwords and made them all fantastic in one password rather than just good or very good. So done a lot, of, a lot of work on that. But where I've moved my wife over, you and I touched on that one. And actually, I just wanted to report back, being a non-event, she hasn't changed many of her accounts to a new email address. But where her old email address just forwards, and it's all within the same apps. It's been a non-event. Fantastic. Massive win in the pit in, in our household. That's really impressive. If you can do family-friendly technology migrations like that, then it's definitely a win. I mean, I, I could have reported back on, I had to do something similar with my wife's photos, that some of which were still in Google Photos and hadn't been moved on to the Synology as I'd talked about before. That was a bit of an undertaking, I gotta say, getting them out of Google Photos and then properly importing them. And it's still not 100% right. Google Photos really mangles your dates. It does, it does an interesting thing in one way. It stores all the metadata about photos. It seems to me, not in the photo image tags as, as most photo, pro, photo management programs do, but it creates a JSON file with every photograph as well that contains the metadata about the photo. And I don't think Apple Photos particularly reads it. So there's some dates gone awry in some of the pictures. That's uh, That's been an interesting thing. I'm still sort of trying to get to the bottom of that. Yeah. I wonder if that's so that you can have extra metadata. I don't know. I assume that's what it's for so they can extend it. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense for all the clever AI stuff does. And I will say it's a huge advantage Google Photos has over Apple Photos is if you're looking for, I can get pictures of my dog. It recognizes my dog in the photographs, not just other Labradors. It knows my, which is just impressive as hell as far as these machine learning things go. So I think you're right. It's that extension over what would just be in the standard JPEG or Heath meta tags, I guess. But it doesn't make it great when you want to come away from Google. And as I sort of gradually distance myself more and more from their services, it's just another thing to contend with. Yeah, it's a fair point, especially if the EU want everything to interoperate with each other. It's probably something else they're going to have to consider. Okay. Mm. Right, next up then for me was just AirPods Pro 2 briefly. Still fantastic. What a great device. I think last time we spoke, I'd barely used them. I've now used them a lot for a lot of work meetings. Now we're back at work. I don't find they pair any quicker than the previous ones when they link to my iPad, but the base quality is really good. Noise cancelling, not as good as I thought it would be. I think that's because I've got the AirPods Max as well, and the noise cancelling them is amazing. And so, but amazing. If I had to have one pair of headphones, I'd have the AirPods Pro because it's just so useful and sound really good. So, dead chuffed with that Christmas present. 
Are you seeing the same battery draw problems with the case that I have, or has it not been an issue for you? I guess I haven't really noticed because I haven't been out and about that much because I've got a MagSafe charger in front of me and I just chuck them on there. So I prob- what I probably need to do is a more scientific test to see actually what that looks like because I think I would check now, but they've been on the charger half of the day. I'm certainly not seeing the individual buds drop the batteries quickly. But on the whole, really impressed with it. But yeah, I guess I'm sat down a lot of the day and when I go for a walk for an hour, I'm then back at my desk and I can just pop the case on the charger and it's the same by my bedside. I often just put the case on there for a few minutes when I go to bed or go and clean my teeth and then put my phone on the MagSafe charger. So I probably charge infrequently without really thinking about it because I've, I've been ingrained into it for the last few years. Yeah, it's not my habit to just automatically put them back on charge. I tend to think they leave them in my pocket for a week to 10 days and then top them up at the end of that. And it was always okay. I did get caught out once of just having absolutely no charge on my airport's case when I was out walking the dog one day. But yeah, I'd be curious if you left it a couple of days and just see what happens if you, if, it, if you feel like... But then I guess you've got no benchmark. If you always just put them on charge before, you're not going to have anything to compare it to. You don't know how fast it was going down before. Yeah, that's true. And I do use my AirPods most of the day on Teams calls. So they're usually one in my ear. And if it's a lunch break, I've probably got a podcast on anyway. So I'm probably not the best guinea pig, but I'm loving that product. That's that's good. I mean, and it echoes my feeling for it as well. It's a great product. It sounds better than it did before. I'd agree with you. As I've got more used to the noise cancelling, I do see some deficiencies in it, but it's better than what was there before, which is a good thing. I don't have the same AirPods Max that you do. Which, by the way, we should probably be due another version of those by now. I mean, they're a couple of, getting on a couple of years. Surely we're due an update for them. Two years old, I was expecting that we might get some lossless ones or something. But do you know what? I probably wouldn't change them. I haven't been in a rush. I've got £500 burning a hole in my pocket to buy another pair. And they are so good. I don't wear them all the time. I wear them mostly to do this podcast and I plug in the cable and I wear them out and about quite a bit. But I don't tend to work or anything. It's more just when I want to go for a walk and listen to some music and really enjoy it. So I'm loving them, but I'm not in need of another pair. They probably are a device Apple should update every three years or so, I would suggest. Yeah, I'd have thought so. For the the people audiophiles who buy something like that. You see the updates and the other headphone manufacturers of similarly priced headphones, Sony, Bang & Olufsen and others, do. You know, that they do update their headphones every year or every two years and all the rest of it. So they're in danger of falling behind the rest of the pack. I mean, the simple answer is they might not be that profitable and they'll be the only version of the AirPods Max that ever exist. You know, in the city, you know, so it is a possibility. They were a bit slow updating the, the AirPods Pro 2, so who knows where we are on that scale. But I think the problem Apple have got is they need to work out how they're going to do lossless, don't they? Mm. That's, that's the big one. You've announced this music service, but you can't use it natively with your headphones. Now, whether that's an issue, everybody seems to have calmed down about it, but I'd be interested to know if they've got a solution. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, thanks for the update on that. I have a small update, which may feature again later in the podcast too. I've talked before about how most of my stuff resides on my Synology. I've got an awful lot of storage on it. It's sort of the core of my home network and all the rest of it. I've very, come very late to the realization that there is a technology within it called Synology Drive. All Synologies have, can you can allow access to them via the internet through various secure means and all the rest of it. And this is basically a home hosted Dropbox where you don't need to install anything else like a Nextcloud or, or one of these other things. You don't need to trust Microsoft OneDrive or Google Drive or, or the Apple technology either. You can actually host it all on your Synology. So I've been trying out that on my phone, on a Linux machine and on my, my Mac. And it works really well. The syncing is almost instant. It's faster than iCloud Drive. It's faster than Google Drive. I see the sync process happening when I'm on, actually logged into Synology as well. So early days for it yet, but I'm really impressed with its ability to, and it integrates with files on the iPad as well. 
That is good, actually. The amount of file providers that integrate with files on the iPad has been impressive. OneDrive do it. I think Dropbox do it. Obviously, iCloud Drive does it. It's really good. Is there a button that you can force the sync? It just seems to sync. I haven't had to force it, and I haven't looked. And I'm not going to take go and look at my phone at the moment just because it's uh, it's 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 filming me, you know, for, for for this podcast. But I haven't noticed. The only reason I ask, I took a screen grab on my iPhone earlier. I was on my iPad, and I, I wanted the screen grab on the iPad. And my iPad goes, photos updated eight minutes ago. And I was like, where's the button to force it? You know, it's plugged in, it's on the Ethernet. Why can't I just force it to, to grab it? Because my phone was saying, photos all uploaded. I just need my iPad to put it down. In the end, I airdropped it to my iPad. And um, it's quite interesting when you airdrop a picture from photos on your phone to your iPad, it doesn't duplicate it. It just, I don't know if it forces the sync or just sends the files locally, but it kind of forces getting the library up to date. So I just did that in the end. But you kind of want that button. You know, I I missed the button of can you just quickly sync now or get, you know, like in Outlook on the PC to have a get mail button. Yeah, I'm looking at the Mac client now as we're talking and I can't see a force it now, obvious to me anyway. So it's not necessarily there, unfortunately. I tell a lie. With it. Oh, gone. I tell a lie. When I go to the menu bar client, there is a little sync button. So yeah, the, you can do it. Okay. I And I wonder sometimes whether they just put a button there that just maybe has an animation or changes some text in the status bar, but does nothing, but at least it pacifies the user. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a failing a lot of a lot of the Apple sync technologies that there isn't that, what the hell are you doing? You know, And I, I find it backing up Apple Photos as well. What is it doing now? There is no sort of integration of progress at all. Is it backing up? Is it waiting for the internet? What's going on? It's, it's a definite problem. And don't get me started on time machine backups. Uh, and that never end, never changing progress bar that sits there is it's the worst bit of feedback I think I've ever seen in any product ever. Agreed, agreed. Right, news and rumors. News and rumors. So first one, which pour one out if you've got a drink in your hand and you're not doing dry January for Dark Sky. It's a a beloved weather app that Apple bought a few years ago. There was an Android client, there was a Mac client, there was an iPhone client, an iPad. Dark Sky was unique in the way it forecasted weather. I think the way that it worked was looked at weather maps broadcast by satellite and just looked for changes in them and was able to predict if the changes were heading in your direction so you could get hyper-local forecasts of weather. It would say rain starting in four minutes and stopping again in 15. It worked in that way and I gotta say, in its early days particularly, it was an astoundingly good weather app. So Apple bought it, they integrated some of the functionality of that into Apple Weather, and as of the 1st of January, they've killed it, and it just stopped working on my phone and my iPad, and I stopped getting my notifications, and it made me quite sad. This is two years, though, into the acquisition. I'm probably on the other side of the fence because I've never used Dark Sky. I use Carrot Weather a little, and all I'm seeing is a massive benefit in my standard iPadOS weather app is now a lot better in that you do get some notifications like possible light rain for the hour. You know, it's going to rain for another 10 minutes, that kind of thing. So I'm seeing only benefits, but then I never use the predecessor. Yeah, I don't like Apple's weathers app as much as Dark Sky. I felt there was more information within Dark Sky. Having said that, I am a fairly heavy carrot user. Carrot weather is great. You can pick the source of your weather within the Carrot app. You can say whether you want to make use of, well, Dark Sky as was, but now the Apple weather app. Or the one that amused me the most was something called Willy Weather. If you're Australian, you can you can pick Willy Weather as your source of, of, of data. Or Mateo in the UK, for example. I think that's where the BBC get their weather maps from these days. So it was a really good app. It was one developer that made it and, and put it out there. It was obviously a clever acquisition for Apple because you're certainly seeing the benefits for it. But yeah, Dark Sky has gone away, but it will live on, I guess, in the source of data for uh, Apple weather. But just a bit of a shame, really, because it was a good app that I paid for. 
Yeah, and I used to get carrot weather, and I'd, I'd pay for that. I was just checking while you were talking there. I think, to be fair to Apple, there's a lot of detail in the app when you go to a place and you scroll down. And most people probably miss that if you scroll down, there's quite a lot in there. But what you don't get, I think, with the Apple weather is many widgets. You get about three widgets, all quite basic. And that's probably where they're not using the data that well. There's just a lack of customizable widgets. And I don't think Apple have got to a very good place with widgets in that more pro apps you can really customize what you show on the widget and you do that within the app whereas apple you just pick these standard widgets and i, th- I think they could do a bit more with it i don't disagree that what that was one of the nice things about dark skies half seven every morning i could say right give me the forecast for the day it was just there on my lock screen when i'd look at it and then you get those notifications of you're going out take an umbrella with you so i know that apple weather does a little bit of that but to have something widgety that's always there they are missing that piece in a few of their apps, actually. Some apps are far better with the widgets. Carrot Weather is very good at it, actually. The Tesla app is a very good widget of, of, of the status of your car anyway, at any point. And the few that Apple have given me, I'm really not that impressed with. You know, the Stacks one that flips the news around every so often and all the rest of it. I, I mean, I'm with you. They're not particularly well-made widgets. No, I'd agree with that. I think I think they're, they're, they're kind of like Widgets 101, and they really could do with it being... You know, widgets two now. Come on, you can put more data on it. You can allow me maybe to have some parameters to choose, you know, different options. Why can't I flip a widget over and actually have some settings there of what I want to display on the widget and things like that? So I guess it's early days. It is early days, but you know, it's it was a good app. Hopefully it'll continue to live on in some way, shape, manner, or form. And you know, it, it was just extremely accurate forecasting. I think meteorologists were quite sniffy about the way that it did it because it did do this looking at pictures and prediction thing using a bit of machine learning rather than carefully developed weather models that most meteorologists have developed over time. So I can understand their sort of sniffiness about it, but it worked really well for me for a little period of time. Yeah, and always very well respected. I think it's got a good name. Definitely. Should we move on? Yeah, Mastodon then rejects funding. Yeah, so I thought this was interesting and sort of a real contrast to most up-and-coming tech products of one way, shape, manner, or form. And and this is a story that Twitter has rejected more than five investment offers from Silicon Valley venture capital firms. You mean Mastodon, not Twitter. Twitter rival Mastodon has rejected more than five investment offers from Silicon Valley venture capital firms just in recent months. Interesting slip there, though, given that Elon famously bought Twitter this year and ran it into the ground. Yeah, and has run it into the ground very quickly. Although I have been reading stories that he is going to try and get do a big ad, uh, advertising push at CES, actually, to try and get people back on board with, with the platform. But what a difference in a platform that you've still got somebody who wants to be independent. And the thing is, I don't think the venture capitalists understand the difference in models between Twitter and a federated model of, of, of this kind of way. It's not a single service they can just buy, snap up and, and, and can take over or, or make a quick buck from. From its outset, it's been designed differently. But it's just interesting that he's been approached, and it's a story in the Financial Times, by five US investors to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in backing the product over the fast growth as people have exited Twitter. So, I mean, it's a good sign that they're actually paying attention to Mastodon in this way. Agreed. I think it's good. Mastodon's obviously making waves. Were they just thinking, it's the next Twitter, let's get in on it before Elon does, and we could sell it for $44 billion. When you said hundreds of thousands, and I read that a couple of times, I thought it should say millions, tens of millions. It just seemed actually quite a small amount. But how does Mastodon make its money? Mastodon doesn't really make money. What it does is the users of the various instances have to pay or are encouraged to pay a certain amount to to the instance maintainers to keep the server and the service up and running. But how do they make money to pay to run their instance? 
from the users of the instance. Right, okay. But we don't, well, I don't pay to join Mastodon. No, you don't have to pay. It's in the goodness of the person who's maintaining the instance to, to, to do that. So if it's normally called trumpet at the instance you're on. So you've probably got trumpet at mastodon.social, um, which will tweet out service, sorry, tweet out, so tweet out service announcements and all those kinds of things as they go on. And other users may encourage you to donate and often they'll have like a Patreon page or something like that to, to encourage you to give a bit of money into that. Certainly the instance I'm on at mastodon.scot, that's the way that it works. There may be other funding models, but I know most of them are discouraged from advertising, from you know corporate push, all that kind of stuff that you saw on Twitter. So it's, it's just a fundamentally different model. Yeah, interesting and hopefully scalable and not having somebody very greedy running it once in every dime it's got to be a good thing i mean the scalable thing is is a whole different thing isn't it i have read some stuff about how the instances are architected and not really designed for the massive influx of users in 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 the way that twitter became i mean having been a twitter user from a very early stage twitter had its it had its issues with scaling and is beginning to see them again that i noticed they had three or four hours of downtime just around the christmas period so there's a lot of infrastructure required to get one of these services up and running, but I think the nature of having, having a federated service means that parts of it should certainly be more robust. So, you know, the smaller instances that maybe are seeing less traffic should cope with it better. The, the problem comes when you get 2 million users leaving Twitter in one day and trying to join one instance. Yeah, and they wouldn't have known about that. And I guess they've had a few waves, haven't they? They had Elon's initial wave, and then I think there was a really big wave when... Twitter said you can't now link to your Instagram, your Facebook, insert social media platform here. And I think that was the, the second big wave. And then they've probably had lots of just dribs and drabs of people, you know, steady over, over the last few weeks. So when the listeners come to look at the show notes, there's two links to this article, one of which is to an Ars Technical art article. So there's the Financial Times article talking about the, the money, and then there's an Ars Technical one, which is the second link. And there's a useful little graph in that, starting on October 24 up to December 18th of people downloading Mastodon apps in the hundreds of thousands. And you can see, as as Elon does something particularly annoying within them, you know, the, the app downloads go up to about 250,000 a day in those two peaks. And then you get another smaller one around December, presumably when all the World Cup stuff was, was kicking off as well. So everything he does has an immediate impact on Mastodon. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? Just, yeah, you can follow announcements just based upon the download rate. Yeah, you really can. It's a good service. I'm still enjoying it. I was lucky enough to get on the Ivory Beta for that app, which is by the maker of Tweetbot. And it's really impressive. It's actually very like their Twitter app with just the icons sort of rebadged and, and accounts for the changes, obviously. Like there's no, there's a 500 character restriction as opposed to a 240 character restriction, for example, that's on Mastodon for its, for its slightly more loquacious microblogging service. Yeah, well done, very smooth, behaves in a very iPhone-like way for me. Everybody else who's on the beta seems to be enjoying it as well. And it, I've heard it on a few other podcasts, it, it's made it a lot more friction-free for people to switch from Twitter to Mastodon with an app that looks a lot more like it and acts more like the way you expect it to work as opposed to the sort of more... I suppose the word is clunky Mastodon clients that so were sort of kicking her in there beforehand. And not to go back on my recommendation of an app of the week of, of Toot a few, a few days ago, a few weeks ago. It's pretty damn good, i got to say. I'm quite impressed to get on it. And I will be happy to give Tapbot some money when Ivory comes out into final release. So my understanding is, listen to some other podcasts, that they actually took the engine of Twitter out of Tweetbot and they were preparing to use it with app.net, if you remember that, so they could have one interface and use it on Twitter or app.net. And I'm guessing all that work, assuming this story is correct, has now paid dividends 
because they've done the same thing, but just used Mastodon as the service and kept the front end largely the same. So that's possibly how they've got up and running so quickly. It, it's quite an impressive feat, actually. You think that they do work in fundamentally different ways. Yes, they've got APIs in which you can consume them, but as we've talked about before, Mastodon makes it available in a lot more ways, such as RSS publishing and all the rest of it. And I think they're in the middle of changing their API from a version three to version four in a new incarnation of Mastodon that's about to come along. So they've really come into this in a period of flux as well. So it, it, it is impressive to get such a, a polished feeling product out so quickly. And what we've said before in this po- podcast, Tapbots, who we're talking about, who develop Ivory and, and Tweetbot. Am I saying that right? Is it Tweetbot? Tweetdeck. Tapbots. Tapbots. But uh, the name of the Twitter client. See, I haven't used it in such a long time. I'm sure it's Tweetbot. Um, Tweetbot. Tweetbot. In, gave us the incarnation of pull to refresh that we now use in multiple places in our iPhones. So they're quite old hands at this stuff. They've got an idea of what they're doing. They're good developers. And Paul Haddad, who's the, who is the main developer at Tapbots, really knows what he's doing. He's worth a follow on social media, actually. For If you're interested in development of an app at all, he's definitely worth a follow. Yeah, I must confess, since Twitter's gone down, I've removed all the apps off my phone because I used a third party one and the native one. I haven't bothered installing Mastodon one. I'm not even sure I've signed in on my phone on it, but I've just left it on my iPad for something I'll check infrequently because I don't need another website to check on my phone. No, I think that's fine. But if you did follow, you know, some of the people who we've talked about on this podcast before, sort of Casey List, John Syracuse, Paul Haddad, Paul Sandell, who does the Swift stuff, all of those are worth a follow. Jason Snell, they're worth a follow. They're on Mastodon and worth following. Definitely John Sandell. Yep, yep. So he's very good. Good app, getting better. Impressive to have done it so quickly and to have been so well received by the community. And Mastodon continues to grow, really, in a, in a way that I'm quite comfortable with, I've got to say. Yeah, I think it's looking good. Hopefully the, the future is bright. Yep, and a bit more sprayed around the community and not just dependent on one slightly mad billionaire taking it and <laughs> being able to burn it. Anyway, moving on. I thought this was an interesting story. It's one of the few things I have managed to sort of pick up from CES as it's been ongoing in America this week. And that is there are a few more displays beginning to appear of a resolution that would be of interest to Mac owners. So the first story is Samsung taking an app on LG with a 5K display for creative pros. Pros even. The Viewfinity S9 is the same size and resolution of the Apple Studio display in a similarly stylish design and you don't have to pay anything extra for its anti-clear finish. So I think this is good. We're getting more competition at this end of the market. I think it's good. Why don't they ever announce any prices? I'm looking at my Apple Studio display. I'm looking at the picture of the View Affinity S9 from Samsung. And they look very similar other than the Samsung's got a camera on the top that I think is detachable, which I think is a, a pro that you can move it around. But other than that, their design is the same. Surely they should have their own design, their own design aesthetic. Well, if you look at smartphones, they're a piece of polished glass with a camera at the top and maybe some capacitive stuff around the sides. And, you know, we've kind of reached the form over function for most devices these days. A a screen's a screen. There's only so much you can do with it. And if you look at Samsung's TVs, they look a lot like that. You know, it's, it's just the way they look. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. But it literally, you could be easily mistaken for which one's the Apple one and which one's the uh, Samsung one. But no, I think I agree with you. I think this is healthy. And it's not just Mac people that are interested in this. Don't forget about us iPad people. We want 5K displays. The iPad drives them. They drive 6K displays too. And it is great to have more pixels. So I think this looks great. And the fact it's got multiple inputs, which is the one thing I wish the studio display had is, can I have two inputs into it, please? I think it looks great. I'm curious to know when it lands, what the price is. 
because that may interest me because I am after a screen to go in in our house and this would be ideal. I don't need a super fast refresh rate. What I want is something really nice with lots of pixels for using on a Mac or an iPad for, for me and the family. So yeah, I'm interested in this one. I'm keen to see when it comes out and what the reviews are like. Yeah, I'm with you. It's it's definitely interesting. And of course you can do things like this. You don't need to pay, you know, it, they're not going to charge you extra for a stand that goes up and down. I wouldn't have thought, you know, knowing, knowing Samsung. <laughs> No, it's all included. Yeah, it's all included. Whereas the Apple one, you know, you've got to pay more for the entry glare screen. You've got to pay more for an adjustable stand, which are, these are table stakes for most screens, let's face it. We know Samsung make good panel, panels. We know LG make good panels because they end up in Apple devices a lot of the time. So Yeah, and it is the panel that you're looking at all day. Yeah, with exactly. With a little bezel around the outside. So no, I, I think it looks really good. And as much as I've said, why does it look like the Apple Studio display? I would probably buy one if it worked really well with my iPad yep. and because it's got the multiple inputs and it will probably be a cheaper price point. Yeah. And 96 watt charging for a connected device. So if you want to plug in your laptop and charge it up really quickly, that's really quite important as well. Yeah, that's very good. And similarly, Dell have announced a 6K screen, which is fantastic. And we're getting into it, Apple XDR territory here for a 32 inch 6K screen, which I got to say, stylistically, I don't like it quite as much. If you want it look, something that looks a little bit different, it's got a fair old forehead on it. That's for sure. Yeah, there's me going, why does the Samsung one look like the Apple one? And then you look at the Dow one, you go, that's why it looks like the Apple one, because Dow has very much got its own aesthetic. It's not very nice. It's not very nice. But when you look at the specifications of this, if you can get over the forehead, I mean, I suppose, you know, most Apple devices used to have a chin of some sort. So maybe a forehead's not, maybe not. What's the joke? It's not a forehead. It's a five head, I think, in this case. But as I look at the specs for this, you know, this has got 140 watt charging for laptops. You're going to be able to power up your your 16 inch MacBook Pro very, very quickly. It's got a 4K webcam. It's got good HDR, HDR 600. You know, it's got a resolution, it's 31, well, 31.5 inches with a resolution of 6,144 by 3,456. That's some good screen real estate. Well, it's 6K. So yeah, no, it looks looks great. And it's got Ethernet on the back, which uh, interests me because I have to buy extra dongles to plug into my studio display to do that. And it's not just Ethernet, it's two and a half gig in Ethernet. It's not just, you know, that's that's a decent amount of speed in your Ethernet port on the back of the screen. That, no, okay, I've missed that. That is very good. And it's HDMI 2.1 as well. So yeah. it's it's a well-spec screen. And Something like that in my office would be ideal. Front-facing ports, two USB-Cs and one USB-A, so you're not scrabbling around the back to plug something in. Yeah, that does cheese me off a little bit. Yeah, I, I good screens. I, it's the, but the most important thing, and for those that don't necessarily care, make sure the laptop screen that comes with it or your iMac as it comes with it, decent connection of screens to Mac laptops particularly and things like the studio at the Mac studio now have been a serious problem. There's lots of fairly average 4K screens around and some good 4K gaming screens, but Mac resolutions really only begin at 5K and 6K. So you get a lot of ghosting, you got a lot of strange effects when, when you plug lower resolution screens into your, into your Mac. And the whole retina concept of four times the pixel quality really doesn't work. And it's absolutely noticeable when you plug it into a lower quality screen. So it's really good that Apple are getting some competition in this market. There has been some rumors that Apple are going to add more monitor options into the lineup beyond the two that they have. Because the studio displays we've talked about before is a good product. The webcam sucks. And the software updates are concerning me. It seems to be falling behind. They're not keeping that up to date in the same way. It has got some issues with it. And despite the fact it's a lovely display, I'm not knocking you for that. And you know better than me, Chris, because you, you you look at one every day. But having these the alternatives... The display is lovely. Yeah. Sorry, the display is lovely. It's, yeah. I know it's an old panel, but it's a lovely panel. Yeah. But, but that's it. It's designed to work with your iPad. It's designed to work with your Mac by the manufacturer. So you would hope it would be the best thing. But 
this kind of stuff is really attractive, particularly of the undercut Apple a fair bit in price, because people will go there. Where I think Mac users and Apple users are far more mercenary than they used to be, and will go where the quality is, and they can save a few quid. Yeah, the studio display is, what, £1,500? Yep. It's too much for nearly everybody. And then the Pro Display XDR is, what, four £5,000 yeah. with a stand on for £999 on top. Yeah. And I'm amazed that hasn't seen a price drop in the three years it's been out because it should have come down by now. Yeah, and again, it's a 6K panel it's a, it's a, and it's 32 inches, so similar to the spec to this Dell we're talking about, but it's only 60 hertz, so you know that's not a particularly good refresh rate. It doesn't have a built-in webcam. It is now using older technology for its display. If you look at my Mac laptop and your iPad, you've got mini LEDs and things like that. You've got OLEDs on lots of panels, so it's beginning to look a bit long in the tooth for a four grand panel. Yeah, it should have come down in price by now. I would have loved one of them, but it's just too much money. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Anyway, I think that's enough on screens, but it's something we'll keep an eye on and we'll see if there's any more announced at CES. We'll maybe talk about it a little bit more next week. Yeah, definitely. The, the next story is one that just amused me, really. In the ongoing battle for Microsoft to acquire Activision Blizzard for $68.7 billion, they've been playing a lot of idiot cards in this, going, oh, poor Microsoft, we're, you know, we're the third people in the room, we're not very big, we're just trying to grow it, and all the things that they've done. And this week, Microsoft claimed that they didn't even know what, what when Call of Duty was being released for the current version. And there is no way in hell you're going to buy a company without doing due diligence and seeing when the biggest titles are going to be released. I mean, why get caught out in a lie like this? Maybe they use Bing to search and they couldn't find it. <laughs> That's a very good, very fair point. But I know if you search in Google, it comes up, what was Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 release date? You get a date. I, I do like that. That's in, on the Verge article you've linked to. And it says, you know, they've got a screen gif from there. Google that shows them searching for it. And it's actually been out. I don't think I could have picked the date. It's the October 29th, 2003. I don't think I would have known it, but obviously I'm not trying to buy the company for an extreme amount of money for that one, largely for that title and some of the, the Blizzard stuff, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's it's just nonsense, isn't it? So I think as, as legal strategies go, they've presumably got one, but they're not making it very apparent with a lot of these things claiming to be the smallest and you know not doing due diligence on their purchase and all kind of stuff. And what will happen when they realise that there was a whole sort of bullying and abuse culture going on in Activision? Do you think Microsoft will suddenly wake up and say, oh, we didn't know anything about that either? It's just, oh, maybe they've done it just to... Yeah, steer everybody's focus onto this and non it and non thing that they know is rubbish, so that they can maybe you know get the deal done whilst everybody's distracted. I don't know. I find it baffling anyway. So it's an interesting story. It's quite amusing. It's from The Verge. I think it's worth a read of the full article. It's bonkers. It is. Moving on, and we're, we're going to dip into rumour situation. There is another story that we'll talk about in the main part of the show about the iPhone 14, but I just thought this was an interesting one about the next ver- iterations of the iPhones, the iPhone 15 and 15 Plus, and we'll see if the Plus is a thing that happens, that are rumoured to feature 48 megapixel cameras just like the Pro model. So this doesn't seem very consistent to me as rumours go. Well, it's going to filter down, isn't it? It just depends what the Pro gets next year, I guess. Yeah, it does. But next year's phone sounds like it's going to have a fair bit of change to me because we're going to get USB-C, ding, ding, ding. There have been rumours about how well the iPhone 14 and iPhone 14 Plus have been selling anyway. They're trying to differentiate the lineup between the Pro and the standard phones. And there's rumours appearing of an Ultra as well that I've heard about. I don't really get what what the strategy is here. The, phone, the, 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 the camera is the most important part of the phone. I think we've, we've all agreed on that. These days it's the most important. Although, based on Marquez's work, which we talked about last week, the iPhone one isn't actually as good as it could be anyway. And maybe that's part of this strategy. 
Yeah. Okay. So you've got a couple of things here, haven't you? Interesting that they might bring out an ultra phone when they're struggling to sell all four phones consistently. They might add a fifth phone or would the ultra just be the 15 Pro Max rebadged? I don't know. So that will be interesting to see where that ends up. Um, when you say the word ultra, I kind of think of the ultra, the Apple Watch Ultra that we've both got in that it's kind of like the premium one at the top. And it's like a new space in the market. But I don't know if iPhone needs another annual refreshed phone. You know, I think they've, they've got enough there. And then... I can see the cameras, you know, being pushed down. Will the dynamic island get pushed down? Who knows? Will you, you know, assuming USB-C is coming, we, we, you and I spoke about it the other week. So will that come to the price first and then get pushed down to the regular ones? So I'm not that surprised by it. Apple's got form for pushing the pro features down to the lower end stuff. They, they constantly do it. They've done it on the Macs for years. So yeah, I'm not surprised. Sure. They push it down, but at the same time, they've only just differentiated the lineup by leaving last year's processor in the 14. So it seems a bit odd to, you know, you're, you're, where you cut those differentiations between the pro line and the standard line seems a bit arbitrary, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but we did say this year was the year where they're trying to put a pause on, I think, to get the differentiation. So if you think next year's regular iPhone will be this year's pro, that would make sense, wouldn't it? That the Pro just gets pushed down. So I think that's where it's going to go. Does this mean that the regular iPhone, what, will it get all three lenses and maybe the Pro gets a fourth lens? Is that what that means? I don't know. Well, Samsung make an ultra phone, don't they? And it is covered in cameras. It's basically one big camera. But you pay you pay for the difference in that. I mean, it is noticeably more expensive than, than the S22 Plus or whatever the current iteration of Samsung phones are. They're, they're priced very similarly to Apple, Apple phones, you know? Yeah, I very much remember my Samsung friends going, oh, I'll never spend £1,000 on a phone. And then the following year, I've just spent £1,000 on a phone. Yeah, and I won't buy a phone with a glued-in battery, and then they buy a phone with a glued-in battery. And, and this is the way that it goes. Well, we've, we've said before, we quite respect Samsung for, for the design choices and the way they have started to forge, forge their own path. And, you know, they have got their own light. I mean, we're just saying about their monitor. It looks very like Apple's monitor. They have got a design style of their own now. So it's it, Apple are as much being influenced by Samsung as the other way around these days, I think. Yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't doubt that at all. And they must have a department both looking at their hardware and their software. Same with Microsoft. You know, what's Windows doing? If only they use the Windows stuff on the iPad. But you, they've got to keep an eye on the, the, comp the competition, surely. Well, maybe that's why we're getting an ultra phone, isn't it? Samsung have had one. It looks to be selling for them. We better have one of them too. Yeah, it does seem like a name that's been borrowed, shall we say. But then I guess Apple have been responsible for the pro branding getting everywhere, so I'm not surprised. I mean, who knows? We're about to talk about the iPhone 14, but maybe they just bring this 48 megapixel camera to whatever the iPhone 15 Plus is or something like that. So there is a differentiator between the 15 phone and the, four, you know, the, the 15 Plus and the 15, if they're going to keep that sort of the two products in the lineup. I don't know. I wonder if they just need one product there. This is the phone for nearly everybody. Let's, and if you want something, if you want the pro phone, get the pro phone. But we'll uh, talk about that in a we'll minute. We'll talk about that in a minute. So the other rumor is that Apple is working on cheaper AirPods. I think this is something they should have actually been doing a long time ago, frankly. That the AirPods are great. They've been a massive success for Apple. These AirPods Lite, or whatever they're going to be called, will be lower than $129, or whatever the equivalent is in the UK. I think it's probably £129. AirPods are great. They became the defining feature of the iPod. I think they're becoming the defining feature. You know whatever model of AirPod is someone's ears, you can tell that it's an Apple product of some sort, even though there are more sort of portable buds and things like that on the market these days. It's a no-brainer. They should sell a, a cheaper one. It is... I'm quite surprised in a way because 
it seems like it's taken them a long time to get the AirPods Pro 2 out that we just discussed. Should they not just be getting the price down of the AirPods 2 and 3 and just, you know, hit the £100 mark that way? They're not good at doing that, though, are they? They'd like to introduce new things and leave the old things in the lineup for as long as they possibly can at the moment. So it's just like they're bloating the line. You could imagine that they bring in AirPods Lite, and I think there's a certain percentage of people who walk into an Apple shop and say, give me the cheapest phone you've got, give me the cheapest Mac you've got, the the MacBook Air, you know, whatever they are. And there'll be a market for people to buy this, and somewhere else in the line will suffer as a consequence. Apple won't mind, because you're still spending money on an Apple product. But the the sort of continual muddying of the line is worrying. But I do think AirPods are too expensive because it's a great product and it should be in more people's hands. Yeah, well, so it's two hundred fifty pounds for the Pro. It's what about one hundred seventy for the three and one hundred twenty nine for the 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 twos. And they are and the twos are old now. I don't disagree. They are quite expensive, but they are fantastic. I'm just surprised they're not trying to get the cost down of the AirPods too. Why build a whole another product? It's going to be quite cheap. Is it worth all that investment? And maybe we pick this up in the main show, but are they struggling with too much fragmentation in their product lines, like old Apple before they bought Next? Yeah, maybe. But if you think Google will sell you an Android phone for, I think a Google Pixel 6a is something like £349, £399. Their buds are £69.99. Wow. Right? So... It's a cheaper phone with a perfectly good operating system. You know, it wasn't for me, but I, I see the value of it. Sixty nine ninety nine is considerably cheaper than you know one hundred twenty nine to get into the AirPods, which is becoming a fairly standard feature. Is wire, you know they don't have headphone connections anymore. You plug something in the Lightning port, probably into the USB C port, if they include that adapter in the box for the next round of them. They've got to make it more accessible. They've got to make it cheaper. And Apple people do tend to spend more money. But it's a bit of a jump, isn't it, from 70 quid from these Google Buds to 130 quid to the cheapest AirPods at the moment. So I think they do need to push down on that price. Yeah, maybe you'll convince me, but I'm still surprised they haven't worked at just reducing the cost of an older product. But maybe that's me. Maybe that's you. I think that's it for news and rumors, Chris. Yeah, quite like this week. Yeah, it hasn't been that busy, has it? So media-wise then, I've been watching Star Wars with my son. So I think I spoke last time I watched Rogue One. To start him off, I started with Rogue One because I wanted to watch it because I want to go and watch Andor and I wanted to rewatch Rogue One. So it's selfishly for me. But then I thought that was a good time then to get him into a new hope. So we started off with episode four. I had to explain why we're watching the episodes in the wrong order because he didn't understand that. You know, when you watch Harry Potter, you watch, you start at one and you go to two and you go to three. And he's like, why are we starting at four? And then we're going to go to five and six but we've already watched 3.5 you know so it was an interesting conversation i had with him i think he's slowly getting it and we're part way through episode five at the moment and he's quite enjoyed it i thought he might struggle because there's some very slow bits in the film where unlike a lot of modern films they they hold the camera for a bit longer you see somebody just walking in the snow for five minutes and nothing really happening but actually fair play he really kept with it which i thought was good for a nine-year-old and i'm quite looking forward to watching the whole saga with him so i'm enjoying star wars again Star Wars is great. And, you know, for me, the fifth film is the best of all the Star Wars films. And Rogue One is a very close second. I absolutely love Rogue One. I think it's a terrific film. And it's only made been made better for me by Andor, actually. Interesting. So I must go back and watch Andor now. But I did enjoy Rogue One, but it was a bit, bit sad at the end for my boy, I think, because obviously everybody blows up. I did like a new... Yeah, okay. Well, I'm sure I've seen it by now. I did like episode four again really enjoyed it we got in 4k episode five we're only part way through and i've forgotten it reminds me a lot of episode eight where they're basically in their base getting attacked 
kind of thing. So I'm I'm quite enjoying rewatching them because I haven't seen them for so long. So and it's nice to do it with your children, isn't it? Share some with them that you both enjoy. It is, and and I did exactly the same thing with my kids. Actually, as soon as I thought they were old enough, unfortunately, they had Star Wars to watch, whether they wanted to or not. And I did the same thing as you. I did four, five, six, one, two, three, and then seven, eight, nine came along while they were still young enough. Really, to sort of appreciate it. Although appreciate might not be the right word for some of those films, but I think in the fullness of time, even I can appreciate the some positive aspects to one, two, and three, even. But four, five, and six are terrific films. Agreed. They are fantastic. Yeah, it's good. It's it's a good. It's a nice, wholesome family thing to do is to watch, you know, some of your favourite films with your kids. And we've talked before about when it's safe to introduce them to some of the things you're desperate to show them, really, because it means so much to you as you were growing up or it was a film that had, you know, some special significance to you. And it's funny looking back at the films from the sort of late 80s, early 90s and how our standards change. Ghostbusters was on over Christmas and I said the original, which is a great film. But what was acceptable to show in Ghostbusters, including a, a ghost and Dan Aykroyd and his belt becoming undone, you think, in a PG film, that's not a thing that would happen in this day and age. No, I was thinking that I might have watched Police Academy earlier, which is a film from the 80s. And I was like, crumbs, I must have watched this when I was my children's age, but I probably wouldn't let them watch these yeah. films until they're a bit older. So it's interesting how, and maybe it is the mummified state where we do you know we try and protect our children for a bit longer ways i think of some of the games and the tvs we, we were watching when we were their age yeah yeah so no fair enough for me i i can't remember if i've talked about this in the podcast have i talked about we own this city on the podcast before no, no. so this was a tv series that came out in april april this year 2022 and i I had watched one episode and then forgot about it, but I had a little bit of time over Christmas before I went back to watch it again. And if you liked The Wire, this is by the same people that did The Wire, the scriptwriters anyway. It's based on a true story of the gun of Baltimore City Police and a particular department within that called the Gun Trace Task Force and just the absolute horrendous corruption that was going on there. I think you may have spoken about this before. Yeah. I don't think I got... No, because John, and I can never say his last Burn, name. Burnsell. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I'd finished it at that point. I'd started it, but now I finished it, and it really holds your attention. It's if you can get hold of this, I think it's on Sky Atlantic. Is one place you can see it as well, as well as in the HBO app. It's just a ter- it's it's another tour de force performance by John Burntall. By the time I got to the end, I was aghast at the levels of corruption that had been allowed to persist in in this police force. And one thing that sort of really stuck to me, struck me when I was watching it, particularly towards the end, and I don't think I'm giving anything away because it'll just be as powerful if if anybody does come to watch it, is they were talking about what happened to change police forces in America particularly and where they switched from being, you know, protecting the public trust to what's Robocop's three prime directives where to protect and to serve, uphold the public duty and, you know, serve the law, whatever it is is when the Reagan government focused on the war on drugs and the war on drugs was held by the police so you had to militarize the police and it was that point everything changed in American policing and I thought that a that's very profound and b wow because then you you see sort of the ongoing impact of what how you militarize the police and they are driving around in armored cars and they do have body armor and it's a different culture to the UK entirely and you know I, I can accept that but it has. It seems to have become worse and worse. We've been following. You look at the capital riots in America, just as Trump was being voted out. If you believe he was voted out, how that militarization went on, and this is just a fascinating insight into the power that individual police officers had, and how it was endorsed by some of the most senior police leaders in that city. 
Sounds like I want to watch this. And it's only six episodes, so it's probably got more of a fighting chance than most TV shows. I've got so many TV series to watch. Yeah, it's 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 really good, and it's told in quite a... It's, there's flashbacks, there's flash-forwards, so you, can, you kind of get the idea of what's going on. And the fact that it's all true is even more insane. If they'd done this in The Wire, you'd have gone, oh, they've gone a bit too far, nobody's this bent out of shape, surely. Yeah, they are. I do quite like a true story, if I'm honest, because like you say, sometimes you just can't believe it. Yeah, no, very good. So I thoroughly enjoyed Beyond the City. I'm glad I went back to it and finished it off, and it's well worth a watch. I'll put it on the list. <laughs> put it on the list. Moving on, The Crown. I haven't got into finishing The Crown. I am quite enjoying it. I don't have an awful lot to say other than I'm not sure about one of the casting, which I think I talked about before. That has persisted as I've sort of gone on through a few more episodes. I think I'm on six of ten now. Still very much enjoying it. It's all a bit too close to home in my memory for some of these things, actually. One thing that did surprise me is how well the Al-Fayeds come out of this. I didn't know an awful lot about the family, other than the, the unfortunate death of Dodie with Diana when, when that happened. Really quite impressive how how, how he started more or less as a, the father, Mohammed Al-Fayed, started as a street trader and ended up the owner of Harrods and everything he brought along with him. But the best, the standout episode for me has actually been Mohammed Al-Fayed and somebody who gets to work for them, used to work for the Duke of Windsor, the one that abdicated terrific standout piece of acting by by both of those actors and you know if you didn't watch anything else in the crowd i would say just that episode is worth a watch yeah it'd be interesting i was watching a show about harrods the department store in the uk and they showed some of the Mohammed fired in it and it and i was like crumbs i'd forgotten all about him and his because he used to be on tv quite frequently he was very well known in the uk yeah i'd probably like to watch i would like to watch the crown i'll put that on the list too another one for the list i know i know you appreciate things going on the list so that's I've just taken two off the list, by the way. Coda, which I did watch, and I Perfect Murder. Excellent. And just a final thing to say, did you watch the Taskmaster New Year special? Are you caught up with Taskmaster? You're not. No. How far I'm did you get? Yeah, I'm on about series six. Dear, oh dear. Still enjoying it though, yeah? I love it. It is fantastic. And even my children have watched small bits with me when when I've been ironing or something and then they've come in and they've sat and watched a bit of the silliness and they think it's they think it's quite good but obviously I don't let them watch very much of it because of the language <laughs> and the inappropriateness which which is all part of it it is and it's not I don't think they focus on that too much it's kind of incidental to what's going on none of the tasks are particularly rude or, or, or anything right so yeah good Fan- fantastic new, love it new year special was great and and Mo Farah was in it so it's, it's a quite a good lineup for the one-off Christmas special so very good yeah, he always comes across very well, I think. He does. Moving on. Games. Games, games. Okay, so I have played some new games. Woo! Well, new to me. That's probably what I should carry it out. Obviously, it's been Gran Turismo 7. We all know that. But I have downloaded and started playing The Last of Us Part 1 on the PS5 because they've remastered it for the PS5. So I have no idea what it looked like before. I think it came out on the PS3, maybe the 4. It's been out a long time. And they've remastered it. It was quite expensive. It's about £70 to buy in the UK, but it's been on sale. So I've picked that up and actually... What a game. You were right. I did like playing that other game I played with lots of story, and I can't remember the name of it now. I think that was also by Naughty Dog. Uncharted. Uncharted, thank you. I loved it. And actually, I'm really enjoying this. And I wish it was a little bit more approachable for my children, because I think actually they would quite enjoy it. So I think it's quite cool. I'm interested to see how the story unfolds. But yeah, really enjoying it. And the, the scenery, the visuals all look fantastic. Plays really well with the DualSense controller. So very good. And on that note, I did just put in the show notes a link to the new DualSense controller that Sony are doing that is £200 in the UK. And that's coming out later this month in January. So the, the regular controller is about £59, give or take, in the UK. And I've got a few of them. But this new one's coming out with some 
you know, replaceable caps on it. You can program some of the buttons and things. And I just, I thought I'd add it in there because I just came across it whilst I was watching a review of The Last of Us. And I thought, have you heard about this controller? I have. I've seen pictures of the controller. I think it's a good idea to be able to bring more disabled gamers in, into the fold because Microsoft have had one for a long time. Sony have been very lackluster here. It's not just for disabled gamers. I think it's more aimed at the pro market. Certainly, it's got a carry case. It's aimed at you taking it around, I guess, a friend's house to play. I just was amazed by the cost of £200, if I'm honest. That was a lot more than I was anticipating. I don't think that's unusual for something like this. That Again, the Microsoft sort of pro controller is about 230, 240 quid, and you can do things like change the tension on the triggers and things like that, so how hard you need to pull on them. Or yeah, this has got that. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I think, I remember reading something about this one, that the battery life's not quite as good as it would be on the normal one, but it's a lot of money for a pro controller. But then you think, in PC gaming, or even on console gaming, if you're a serious, committed Gran Turismo player, you go and you buy a wheel and pedals, and the wheel and pedals can be two, three, four, five hundred quid. I've got some news on that one. Go on then. I haven't bought any, but I was talking to a, a colleague of mine at work, and he was showing me ones that cost one thousand pounds, one thousand five hundred pounds, two thousand pounds for a steering wheel. Yeah. So very interesting. And you can actually get Ferrari steering wheels, play Porsche steering wheels. You know, pick, pick your favorite brand of car. So it's quite a market. Once you start looking, it does get expensive very quickly. But no, I I think I was surprised because. I thought Sony either do a pad for about 50, 60 pounds or 200 pounds. I thought this would have been somewhere in the middle of that of that number, if I'm honest. Yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is a little excessive for most gamers. And we all know these things wear out, you know, in, in, a, in a relatively fast period of time in some cases. The amount of motors and sort of drive buttons and things like that that are on the current version of the DualSense is, is insane to get that level of feel that you do. And we've talked in this show before about the difference between it and the Xbox controller. And the Xbox controller is a much more simple thing. It's a good controller. But I, I, I worry about longevity slightly of the current generation of DualSense. And if I was spending 200 quid on it, I'd want to get many, many years, of, happy years out of it. All of my PS4 controllers, all of them, the left trigger, the clickiness of it just goes, and which in most games is like run. And I can't run in any of them. The, and the, all of them expire in about 18 months. Yeah, it's not good. We've already had a PS5 controller go. The buttons just, you know, the X and the square button just don't work the same. I'm interested in it. Definitely one for Black Friday next year, I think, if I'm going to get one. Yeah, I, I, on a related note, I tried one of those Logitech wheels with the last version of Gran Turismo. A friend of mine had the Logitech, whatever the version was. It was about a 300 quid wheel. I absolutely hated it. I couldn't drive the car on Gran Turismo, one of those wheels. I'm so used to playing it with a, with a DualSense controller that it just it felt unnatural to me. that I, I couldn't control the car at all. It made no sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably would be the same. I haven't tried a steering wheel, but my, my friend was showing me a seat you can get where you've, you've got a bar basically to bolt the wheel onto and things. And I was like, oh, crumbs, that's probably a, a step too far. I'm a bit bit more casual, if I'm honest. But no, interesting. And then secondly, I also bought and downloaded Gran Turismo 5, the PlayStation 5 version, the one that's actually been remastered. My game is on sale, it's half price. I quite enjoyed it. I thought the graphics were very good. And I posted in a video just to see some differences. I'd, I had no idea this had actually come out. So I must have missed that about nine months ago. But I kind of realized I think I'm too old to play Grand Theft Auto now. <laughs> I just wasn't as into the story and all the swearing and and everything and i used to love grand theft auto and i did recently replay vice city last year but on my switch but i was just a bit disappointed with the actual game like i said i think the visuals are great and the cars and and all of that and i am not about getting it because it is quite a time sink but i thought it's half price i wouldn't mind to try it but yeah i think i'm just too old for it yeah there's i think that's the one there's a sort of press x to torture scene in if you play the story long enough and it's really quite gruesome okay 
Yeah, I, I was I was unimpressed when I got to that, but in fact, I think I stopped playing it fairly quickly afterwards. So I think my sensibilities as a gamer have changed over time. They've it was always just more all the hip hop talk and the swearing, and uh... I just I don't know. I just wasn't that into it. I struggled. Fair enough. Just briefly circling back to the Last of Us. You know, they're making a TV show of the Last of Us game. I did not know that because they did Uncharted, didn't they? Yeah, they did Uncharted, but this is a full-on TV show. It's an HBO one and stars Pedro Pascal and you don't watch Game of Thrones, but uh, one of the act- actresses from Game of Thrones as well who, played a ch- who was a child when that came along, who plays Ellie, the character in, in The Last of Us. I think it's $100 million for the series for The Last of Us that HBO are spending on it. Wow. Yeah. That's why they've released the game probably to Phantom of it. Probably, but it's obviously, let's hope that this will be the first bit of, of computer game stuff that actually turns into something decent, because that's some serious talent on the screen there with Pedro Pascal. Yeah, definitely. Did you watch the Uncharted film? Because I've not seen it. I've tried. <laughs> Is that good? <laughs> I, I, the, there's lots of parts of that I should like. You know, I like Tom Holland. I don't mind Mark Wahlberg. I managed seven minutes and I switched it off. Seven whole minutes? Yeah. Wow. And in its defence, that's longer than I lasted with Black Adam, which I think was six minutes. That's The Rock, isn't it? Yeah. It's a truly awful film. And again, I like The Rock. (laughs) So, you know. I think he's very funny. I do like him. I think he's, obviously his presence on screen is something to behold. Yeah. Yeah, I quite like him too. But that's a shame. All right. Well, there's two films I'm not going to miss then. Yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't, don't run, don't run to watch them or even walk her. In fact, I suspect if they came on and you weren't paying attention, you'd switch them off very rapidly. I have two very quick bits of of gaming news. One of which is we talked about OpenRA on this show a while back. I was looking into how we'd, have you ever found the time, play it. If you wanted to have a head-to-head game at some point. I have figured out how to do so. I have spun up a Docker instance on my Proxmox server, so I have a Docker instance running of it, and there's a little link in the show notes if anybody's interested in how you do it. It was very straightforward, actually. Two Docker commands, up it came. You can give it an amount of memory. You can tell it what you wanted to play, be it the June 2 variant or the Red Alert variant or Tiberian Sun. You can password protect it. You can make it be available to on the server browser within OpenRA itself. And... All you'll need to do is put in the IP address I give you and you'll be able to connect instantly and we can have a game. It'll all work really before. We should definitely try out Red Alert or something where we know what the units are and, and what have you. I think I will struggle with the, you know, using the mouse because obviously all the, the clicking was all the wrong way around for me, but I guess that will come. You'll get the hang of it. I'm sure you'll get the hang of it. Anyway, so it's sitting there ready to go. So the, the challenge is to you to find five minutes to, to meet me to play it. Understood. Balls in my court. The ball is totally in your court. And my last story is, and this is my gaming, definitely my gaming thing of the week, is Vampire Survivors, which I talked about a few weeks ago as being almost a reason to have a Steam Deck, is suddenly available on iOS and iPadOS. And the thing I find most peculiar about it is that it, I can't find a way to give the developers any money. It is exactly the game that I paid. I don't know, it wasn't expensive, £5.79 or something like that for on Steam. It's completely free on iOS and iPadOS. There doesn't appear to be any advertising in it. I don't understand what's going on. If you had any curiosity about playing Vampire Survivors, which you should have, because it's a great little game, check it out and be as perplexed as I am as how they can give it away. i got to say, it looks pretty old-fashioned the first time you launch it, but it's got just quite a compelling play loop in it. So uh, link in the show notes of, how to, of where to download it from. Great little game, Vampire Survivors. Yeah, and it looks like it's been updated for the last four weeks. Maybe they're doing a second one and this is a way of getting people into the series or something but you're right there's no in-app there's no one-off purchase yeah look looks a bit strange but yeah i'm not complaining it's it's great run don't walk and download that i'll make a change from threes for you i'm still playing threes i know you're still playing threes 
Good. Maybe uh, I need to take that app off my phone more than I need to take Twitter off my yeah, phone. I, th- I think that's probably fairly important. So there we go. Anything else for games, Chris? I think I've done pretty well this week. I'm, I'm feeling pretty pleased with myself. And you should be. And you should be. So moving on, and we'll have a fairly short main show talking about a, a story that came up in the news this week. And I'll just read the headline from the 9 to 5 article that we'll link to in the show notes, obviously. And it's about the iPhone 14 Plus being a commercial failure. And all signs at the moment are pointing towards the sales of the iPhone 14 Plus being entirely flat, nobody buying it, nobody having any interest. And it seems to mirror what we were hearing about the iPhone 13 mini and the iPhone 12 mini that they weren't selling particularly well. Obviously a few people wanted them. They wanted the smaller phone because it was portable. They weren't selling in huge volumes because people were buying the iPhone 13 and 12 and before it. So Apple flipped to the other way and they made an iPhone 14 plus this time. And it doesn't seem to be selling to the extent that we're hearing other rumors of production being cut in the iPhone 14 line altogether, but certainly in the iPhone 14 plus. What do you think of this story? Hmm. I haven't seen one in in the wild. I don't know about you. And obviously we're not working in the office like we used to. And so I'm not surprised. It is £950 in the UK. The iPhone 14 regular is £850 in the UK. I'm rounding up slightly here. And the iPhone 14 Pro is £1,100. So it does hit the right price point, I think. But I'm assuming most people either just want the new iPhone and then just get the 14 or they know they want the pro and they buy the pro. I just, I just fear there isn't that middle market. Yeah. I, I think this is hinting at what I was saying before is it people who want a new iPhone. Can I have an iPhone please? Oh, that's the one it's the right. It's, it's more money than I want to spend, but I'm, I, I want an iPhone. So it's what I'm going to buy. Oh, I could have this one for another couple of hundred quid. That's what, what's the difference between it and this the screen's a bit bigger. Oh, no, I don't need that, thanks. And I think that was the problem with the other one as well. It's a bit smaller. Well, you know, I'm older, my eyes aren't so good. I don't need a small one. I want the battery life. I'll just have an iPhone 13, please, or an iPhone 12, please. And to me, it was always an upsell to the pro. People like you and me who are really into our iPhones and, you know, we want this, we want the camera. There's some, I want the dynamic island. There's some feature in the new phone that I can convince myself that I'm happy to spend a little bit of money to get. Great. But most people, and we've said this for years, is the standard iPhone is good enough, more than good enough. You know, it's, I think there's three of them, four of them in this house at the moment. You know, iPhone 11, iPhone 12, iPhone 13. Great phones, all of them. No reason to go with the Pro from, for 99% of people. This suffers from that. It's not worth the... I mean, we've, co- we've both got iPhone 14s in our households now, but both of us said it's a lackluster update. And then you compound that by making the bigger one more expensive. I'm not entirely surprised. The best thing with the iPhone 14 is the battery, by far. And they've sorted the thermals out. They are the two key things that nobody will physically see, but are fantastic. I just wonder whether, and I think I said earlier, whether Apple have got too much fragmentation. Whereas life used to be a lot easier. You want the iPhone? There's one iPhone. You buy it. You either buy the latest one or last year's one. Whereas now they've gone the polar opposite way. We bring out four models every year. And obviously we were just talking earlier in the show of there could be a fifth model. And is that too much too frequently? Because most people, I certainly probably had it with my 12, actually could have probably gone on another year. Could have kept it for a third year. But I fancied a change. And I think probably the dynamic island, the always on screen, probably just pushed me over. And I I think I just fancied something different in my pocket. So I wonder whether they do have too much fragmentation. And and I joked earlier, are Apple getting like Neck, like Apple when they got bought by Next? Oh, sorry. (laughs) Apple bought Next, didn't they? But it was a reverse acquisition. And Steve Jobs came back and just simplified the whole lineup. You know, you go and buy an iPad now. Do you want the ninth one from last year? Do you want the tenth one? Do you want the Air? Do you want the 11-inch Pro? Do you want the 12-point-something-inch Pro? And then you go and buy a Mac laptop. Do you want the Air? Do you want the 
old air do you want the macbook pro 13 inch with the touch bar do you want the 14 inch do you want the 16 inch you know there's just so much choice and a lot of the prices are within 100 pounds of each other and 100 pounds was a lot of money a couple of years ago it's worth a lot less now so i just wonder whether they've got too much around all the price points would apple be better having a 500 pound new phone each year like google do they often have a very cheap phone like you were talking about the pixel earlier would that be a better market for them to serve? Quite possibly. Because when I'm trying to buy a, a phone for my parents or my wife's parents, I don't want them to have an £850 phone. They don't want to spend that much money. Whereas actually, if they probably had something at the lower end of the market, it would, would probably be more than adequate for them. And I don't mean the SE with, with the home button. You know, they could do a much better phone and sell them in more quantity there if they did it in the right way. Yeah, I'm with you. I think the SE is rubbish, frankly. That they, they shouldn't it shouldn't be in the market. So if you go to Google's website now, direct from the manufacturer, you can have a Google Pixel 6a, which is a modern-looking smartphone, for £299. Wow. Right, and then you put in your cheap Pixel Buds as well. And Apple fanboys though we are, there's nothing wrong with this phone. You know, I know I had my issues with, with Outlook and all the rest of it. I'm sure if I'd given it another couple of days, it would have been more than good enough to run the software I wanted to do. It wouldn't have had the integration that I like or all the other bits and pieces that I like. But if all you want is a phone that can make calls, send messages, pay for your parking and do your banking on, this is going to do that extremely well for 300 quid. It doesn't um, look like a 300 quid phone. It's it does. Got, you know, it's got an all, all front is screen looks very modern it's got the you know the camera punch out it looks very good it does and it's got those clever cameras with google software in the back that you're going to take delightful pictures with the thing as well so it's a real hard ask when you can get something like this for 300 quid to go all the way up to 850 quid for you know for for a bigger iphone and i mean Pricing things in an expensive way isn't always a bad strategy. It was Lexus's strategy for years. Is how much does this car cost? Right, add 15 grand to ours because people will pay for that. It's a perfect storm for Apple at the moment that they've got a cost of living crisis going on. They've got, they're being challenged in the markets. They've got a supply, supply crisis. They're keeping things in the lineup and they keep pushing things further and further up it. And I think they've got this wrong, frankly. For what is the top-end phone, the pro, pro, pro phone, yep, they're over £1,000. The Google phones get close to that as well for the for the top-end market. But they've left such a gap at the lower end of the market, which is, let's face it, where most people live. <laughs> most people don't want to spend, as you just said, over 700 over 600 over £500 in a phone when they can get something that's more than good enough, actually extremely good, for £300. So I, I just think they've completely lost track of where this is going. Apple can make cheap products. The HomePod is a cheap product, you know, that works perfectly well. HomePod Mini, I should say. You know, it works perfectly well. If you think back to the iPhone 5C, that was a good product. It was a quality piece of, of, of engineering that was well made. It had a plastic back. It came in some nice colors and all the rest of it. It was just as good as the 5S that came out at the same sort of time. For whatever reason, they never went back and pursued that product. And I think they lost their way a little bit there. Yeah, and I think, interesting you bring up the HomePod Mini, I'm looking at one right now. What a great product. £90, quite cheap for an Apple product, but really well made. Comes with a charger in the case. But they, they can do cheap products. They can make and still maintain quality. And I'm assuming they are maintaining their margin. Yeah, I would have thought so. But then that product is going to languish in the lineup, isn't it? The HomePod, how old is the HomePod Mini now? It's at least a year old, possibly 18 months old. Yeah, no, it is, but... Do you know what? Do they need to bring out what? What are they going to do with the speaker? 
more than what it does now, unless you make Siri any good, which they can do just in software. Put, put a screen on it, do something interesting with it, do some, bring out another, another point in the market to make it more interesting. I wonder whether Matter is the floodgate that we need for this. The Matter floodgate hasn't opened yet because obviously we talked last week about them pulling the home architecture. So I wonder whether the home stuff is delayed. It feels like it is because they were they were bigging up all the home stuff they were doing. And I think they needed the Matter piece to ship. And we've probably got another six months of Matter bedding down before we actually start seeing it. And I think if we cover a bit more CS next week, we might see some more home devices there. I'm certainly got a keen eye on the matter world as you know so i think what we're saying here is the iphone 14 is a good phone even though we said nobody should buy it because it was a dull update but you know it, it made sense that they were having a stagnant year whilst they introduced separation the 14 plus is filling a void they didn't need to f- fill and actually they'd be better to make a reasonably big screen phone relatively cheaply so ideally bring back a f- the iphone 12 regular phone would be ideal about now have one of them in the lineup that you can buy brand new just maybe not called the iphone 12 but hit the right price points but you do pay a lot of money for a very basic iphone and you can pay a very small amount of money for a very basic android phone yeah i'd go further i'd say the iphone 10r would be the one to go for the xr would be the one to go for where that was it was about 600 quid it was, which is probably still a little bit much, but you, I think people could push it up to that. Had an LCD screen instead of an OLED, but it did a Face ID. It had all those other bits and pieces that you'd want in, a, in something of like that, without you know sacrificing very much. It had astounding battery, and still, you know, I think that's a phone that's aged particularly well in the lineup. And and those sort of outliers, like the, like the 10R, like the 5C that I mentioned before, were far better phones than we we're given credit for. And I. I remember when they started really sort of pushing the price. Was it the 6S? They sort of really started pushing the price up from where it had been. It had always been around sort of 499, 550, something like that. And then with the 6S, it started jumping to 600, 700, 800. And, and it's just continued up, 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 up every, every year since. And when you look at how cheap a quality Android phone is, you begin to wonder why, really. You know, that it, it, we're happy to pay for a dynamic Islander or, or, or some feature for that software integration, but... For all we love Apple products, at some point it'll become a barrier even to us where we go, no, I'm not going to spend two grand to have the bottom-end bottom iPhone because there isn't the value in that for me. I'll stick with what I've got for another year, two years, three years. And you do start considering right, what else is in the market. At some point, that pinch point will come. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I actually, actually set my mum with an XR last week, a second hand-me-down for my family. And what a fantastic phone that is. It felt good in the hand. Interesting watching somebody get used to not having a home button. The first question was, how do I get rid of messages? And he's like, oh, you just swipe up. I mean, you've you seen me do it all the time for the last three years. Well, more than that probably now. And But she had no idea. It was quite interesting just watching, watching her use a home button less phone for a while. But no, what a fantastic device. And I think it has held up really well. And you're right, maybe maybe the XR would do it. Maybe, maybe that would be just fine. I think it would. If you put a, you know, a, a more up-to-date silicon package into it, there's no reason at all. We don't need huge high-resolution screens with HDR, with ProMotion Capture and all the rest of it for the majority of users. They're not Steven Spielberg. They're not out capturing the next generation of whatever film on these things. We are sold on these Pro features that we don't use. What is the point in turning on RAW on our Pro phones when we don't really sort of manipulate our photographs in that way? When the apps to use it are so complicated, you can't figure out what the point of it is. Rules awesome. Okay. Apple still sell the iPhone 12. Do they? How much for? 
he's sitting down. Hmm. 650 pounds. Yeah, it's unacceptable. Again, it's too much. It's, it's too much for what a three-year-old phone, four-year-old phone. It does come in purple, though. Yeah, so does the iPhone 15, and you can put a purple case on any phone and it'll be purple. The iPhone 15 isn't out yet, and the 14 comes in a pink. Oh, uh, it, sorry, I tell you, it's called purple. It's it's purple, because that's what I bought my daughter. It's definitely purple. That was her stipulation when she moved from her iPhone 11, is she wanted another purple phone. So I know for a fact it's purple. Yeah, it is called purple. You're 100% right, apologies. Anyway, the, the long and the short of it is, I think it's not a surprise that they're beginning to not get sales when the phones are more expensive and they're adding features that nobody has really asked for. Presumably Apple have the Apple have the data for the iPhone 6 Plus and the 6, you know, how well those sold relative to each other, how well the iPhone 14 Pro Max sale, sells compared to the iPhone 14 Pro. I mean, you're an interesting use case here because you went down a screen size. You went from a, you know, a 12 Pro Max to a 12 uh, to a, a 14 Pro, right? Do you notice the difference? No, because for the one reason, Apple don't do the more space feature like I now get on my iPad where I can fit more in because actually you get the same number of icons on the home screen in control center. I think you might get another row on the home screen, but like, but basically you get roughly the same number. It doesn't do anything with the extra width. So that's why I didn't miss it one iota and I don't miss the extra bulk in my pocket. I probably do miss the battery life a mm. little bit. And hand on heart, I like the cameras on mine. It's too top heavy. You know, in the hand, the cameras make it too top heavy. The thing I like more than anything, I think, is the HDR screen. When I take a lovely picture of a sunset or a sunrise or something like that, it looks phenomenal on the screen. But I don't know if it's £800 more phenomenal than what I'd get in a Google Pixel 6a, hand on heart, you know, to think about when you start thinking about purely in terms of value like that. And there's the subtle things. An iPhone 14 should last a number of years longer because you're going to get potentially more software updates can be more robust etc cetera, etc cetera. but is it that many more years most people would consider buying a new phone in three years or four years and presumably google give you at least three years worth of software updates at this point so it it, it becomes a harder economic question all the time and if you're very if you're happy enough with that ecosystem you know yeah no i think you raised some good points one thing i forgot to mention i've used my iphone 14 without a case for most of my time of having it and it's fantastic. It feels really good. I have a case for it when I'm out in the garden or what have you. But actually it feels really good. And I haven't scratched it. I haven't dinged it. I'm not uber careful with it. But equally, I do try and look after it. And it's been quite liberating being case free. Yeah, you've just given me the heebies with that. I think if I spent 300 quid on a phone, I'd still put a case on it. In fact, back in the day when I spent 300 quid on a phone, I did put a case on it. And there's no way on earth I'm going out without a case on my phone in this day and age. You know what? It's nice to appreciate the actual craftsmanship of the device the stainless steel bands which you normally don't see i've got mine in white or silver as they call it the nice back on it and every time i pick it up it's it's, it's a nice phone so i think i can't remember if i told you this story when i went to amsterdam for that conference i got off the train i was it was my ticket as well as being my phone and i dropped it face down on the platform face down on a yeah, on a ridge platform from about chest height because I'd, I'd just been opening it up to do the, the ticket. The whole train platform carriage room, me all knew the noise and everybody went... <sighs> it was funny. Dutch people, British people, everybody in the conference, we all made the same noise when the phone hit the deck and it was fine because I had a case on it with a nice raised rim that it managed to survive you know, being being dropped from that height. I'm six foot one, so it's a reasonable height to hit a concrete decking on. Yeah, But we've all done it. 
we've all done it. I, I, I fancy my chances slightly better with a case on than without a case on. And the fact that it's 1100 quid of just drop face down onto the tarmac, that, that gives me, it just gives me, maybe I'm clumsier than you, Chris. Maybe that's, maybe that's the difference. Look, we've all dropped the phone. We've all done it. And one day I may regret it, but for the moment, really enjoying it. But super impressed how well the screens held up to it. My 12, I think that was one of the first ones with ceramic shield. And I was really disappointed with it. But actually, the 14 is much better. I don't know about the 13 because I never had one. But it's just worn really, really well. And it looks fantastic. And I'm genuinely enjoying it. Do you want to back to just iPhones generally for one second? You can buy an SE for a 550, a 12 for 650, a 13 for 750, a 14 for 850, a 14 plus for 950, a Pro for 1,100, and a Pro Max for 1,200. So they are covering a lot of price points. But still for £500, you get a phone that looks like one from five years ago. Yeah. Yeah, whereas if you go for the Google Pixel as an example, it looks like a modern smartphone. I completely agree. Completely agree with you. And I love my iPhone. Yeah. But it's a tough sell when you're buying them for your dear grandparents that don't want the latest tech, have no idea what OLED is, and they're not fussed by it. Yeah, it's definitely a hard sell. And if anybody's going to look in the rosy side of apple it's you and me you know for 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 reference look at the last 49 episodes of this podcast pretty much so it's it's probably quite hard for us to admit to this but i can you can understand why that why things are the way they are and at some point it is going to become more untenable it's the you know it's the single biggest brand selling smartphone in the world because android's so splintered samsung make them google make them huawei make them etc etc there's more android out there but as a brand, iPhone is covered, you know, you know, for f- four models, five models, six models, depending on how you go back. But it, it can't continue. If people's gas bills are going up 40% in a year, ask them to spend 750 quid on the bot on the base current edition of the smartphone. It's an awful big ask. And that's the problem, I think. I can't point my parents to this to Apple's website and go, go buy that phone and it will it it will do what you want because they all do what they want, but they're just too expensive for what they need. And they, I think even a £400 phone would be a bit much, but I, that would probably be acceptable to that generation to pay because they do use it all the time, but they don't like to spend money on these things. So I just, yeah, that's the bit I struggle with, I think. Yeah, yeah. And like I say, it's a different value proposition in two years or three years or four years. And then there's the app store and the scamminess and et cetera, et cetera. But I wonder how many of your parents' generation and my parents' generation would go and surfing around the app store looking for Apex anyway. All they want to do is get their banking app maybe or be able to pay for their car parking when they land at a council site or or whatever the specific use case is. They're not there looking for Candy Crush Mark 7 or whatever where the scammy apps are. So I'd say for 99% of people, they're going to be perfectly fine. Yeah, I completely agree. So I think we are saying iPhone 14 probably is a plus is a commercial failure because we've not seen any and it doesn't sound good. And the 14, I don't think we know yet. We never will know. But I think the pros are so good and people that really want an annual phone will get the pro. So yeah, I think you're right. On that note, should we move on to App of the Week? Let's move on to App of the Week. My App of the Week this week is Synology Drive for Mac. And for iOS, I've found it to be very well built. It's easy to download from the store. It's dead easy to put in your your Synology sync details. It's obviously a bit specialist. You need a Synology or a two or a four drive Synology for it to be up and running on your network. But if you're not happy trusting your data to a cloud provider and are happy to have it in your home, I'd thoroughly recommend getting Synology Drive. It works just as well in my experience using it in the last week compared to any of the other things that I've, I've made use of recently. I'm really impressed with it. 
Yeah, I would be a bit more interested, I think, but I've literally just turned off my Synology and I'm about to wipe the drivers in it and pass on to a friend of mine who is hopefully listening to the show as he asked me for the link to it on New Year's Eve. But I think, I'm, yeah, I think it is a good app and I am still amazed with Apple's integration to the Files app because the way they allowed other companies to do things with the Files app, I think it's an underrated app on, on the iPad and the iPhone because you can do so much with it and even when you plug in a USB hard drive and you don't have to eject it, you can just unplug it. There's some super clever stuff in there. Yeah, they've caught up with Windows and Linux being able to do that. I know I haven't used Windows or Linux for a long time, but but you still have to eject on your Mac, though, don't you? Yeah, you do. But, but even that's a bit of a hangover these days. I was going to make a very crude joke there, but I won't do that. It, it, the, for anybody interested in the history of this, it's to do with journal file systems and the way it delays caches, cached writes to things. So APFS doesn't work in the same way that HFS Plus used to use. HFS Plus used to save its writes still right to the end. So you really had to eject drives because it might have cached the write down the line. So by you saying eject this, it would pull it out of the queue and write to the drive. NTFS has never worked in that way. It makes its writes instantly and all of the more recent Linux file systems have too. So in the old days of spinning disks, you'd want to eject them as USB drives to park the heads before you unplugged it, which is why you did it then. But these days with SSDs and flash drives, it makes no difference and doesn't with APFS either. Okay, well, there you go. I've, I've learned something new. And for those that didn't know, I think we talked about APFS the other week. That's Apple's file system on everything from your TV, your watch, to your phone. And HFS Plus was what the Mac and iPhone was running for a long, long time, 20, 30 years per, per chance. Sorry, I went super geeky there for a second. I apologize, but there is a reason. You can just whip it out these days. It's not a problem. Enough said. Moving on. Moving on. That's a, We can call that a show. We can call that a show. So look, if anyone wants to get into contact, do drop us an email at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. Still on Twitter at the moment at WFS underscore podcast. And then Rod and I are both on Mastodon and the links are in the show notes. Absolutely. Talk to you next week, Chris. And we'll try and get it out in time next week. Yeah, cheers, Rod. Thank you. Have a good one.